And it's time now for another edition of Banker with a Beer. Uh, Scott is still uh, somewhere in St. Louis, so I'm still running the show on my own for a little bit. But uh, we have no doubt have a great show again today. Uh, we have a wonderful guest, Kerry uh, Kincaid, uh, the former president of the Eau Claire City Council, is on board with us today, and we're going to have a wonderful beverage as well. We're going to be having a New Belgian triple uh, style ale, so I'll be opening that in a moment. But Kerry, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, I, obviously, the, the city council area is something we're going to be talking about, but you're also listed as a leadership scholar. What's a leadership scholar, <laughs> and, and what are you doing these days? Yeah, I'm, I, the short answer is I'm staying very busy. Okay. But the longer answer is that I finished my doctorate in leadership studies at St. Thomas uh, in 21. So I've, uh, this fall, I'll be teaching a course in state and local politics at UW-Eau Claire. I think I know... A few things about state and local politics. So. Well, absolutely. <laughs> well, before we kind of launch into this and why I'm pouring the beverages, how about give us, you know, not everyone knows your career here, and maybe just give us a little bio on Carrie Kincaid, where you're born, how you got to Eau Claire, and, and, and how you got on, on city council. Okay. Ooh, that, let's see, that would be a long story, so okay. I'll shorten it up <laughs> as much as possible. Um, I came to Eau Claire because my husband and I at the time put our fingers on a map and uh, we drove here without kids. We had our dog and um, settled down. And that was 40 years ago. You, you <laughs> just put your finger on a map. Anyway. Finger on a map. What, 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 I mean, what, <laughs> anywhere in Wisconsin, just anywhere in the country? Or where did we, I grew up in South Minneapolis, so we wanted to be, we, we were moving from Ohio, so okay. we wanted to be closer to family. And, but as I might say, in all respect for my pa- my parents, not too close. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, then I worked as a nurse. I, I am an RN and worked as a nurse for a long time. Then things changed and I uh, ran for the Town of Washington Board in 1993. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so for 25 years, I served in an elected or appointed position in local politics. In 2004, my attention was turned to city council. I ran for city council, served for five years, and then the the rest of my time on city council, the rest of the 14 years as city council president. Well, there is some rich history to go through, and we'll have a chance, <laughs> but uh, let's uh, cheers. get ourselves off to the right start. Mm-hmm. Is it worthy? Mm-hmm. I think New Belgium does a great job with these. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to start out with a little story, and I'm going to—it's usually I don't talk too much about myself on the show, but I think it's a great prelude. Um, a couple of months ago, I was doing a presentation for uh, I think Leadership Triple Falls, and I started the show or started off. They were asking me about how things had changed during my career. And I said, well, here's what's happened. I was going to be driving from Chippewa Falls to Eau Claire for a meeting I had at, at the Pablo Center. As I'm driving, I realized that I'm on the inner bypass, which when I started didn't exist. And I got off at the River Prairie exit, which didn't exist. And I drove over through River Prairie, which didn't exist, over the bridge over the Eau Claire River, which didn't exist. I took a left on Galloway, went by um, Unaroyal, which was just 
vacant at the time that I, I was there and before it became Banbury Place, and then crossed into downtown, past Oxbow, which didn't, again, didn't exist, uh, Ramon's Ice Cream, which didn't exist, the parking structure didn't exist, parked in front of RCU, which didn't exist, crossed over this bridge, new bridge, which didn't exist, into the Haymarket Plaza, which didn't exist, for my meeting in the Pablo Center, which didn't exist. All those items happened during my career. And during your time by the city council, the area, you had a hand or a say in all those projects or many of those projects. That's amazing. And I think, you know, what people forget is is the story that Eau Claire has become and the excitement in this community didn't just happen overnight. It was decisions upon decisions upon decisions and meetings and meetings that happened. And I'm hoping if we, if we possibly can over the course of this 30 minutes that you can shed some light on that process. Hmm. When I was early on city council, Brian Amundsen made the decision. He was a city engineer. He said, there, as you recall, there was an inner and outer bypass controversy. Yep. Um, citizen input and hard, strong feelings. And Brian Amundsen said, no, inner bypass. And I remember the day we opened the inner bypass. And I stood next to him and I could see a calm assurance, um, something I really admired. I <laughs> said, <laughs> so, hmm, I see that. So over the years, I tried to emulate a calm assurance, always acting calmer than I felt inside. <laughs> and when the downtown uh, development presented itself, in the same way perhaps that maybe Brian Amundsen could see that the inner bypass was the right answer, I could see, I could see all those things that you mentioned that weren't there or that were crumbling I could see that they didn't have to be that way. And there I was uh, long enough in Eau Claire to understand her and to think that I could maybe apply some leadership skills and some life skills and help her see what she could be. <laughs> well, let's go back to, I'll say, around 2000. Because mm -hmm. I think you, you, you about, I'm not sure exactly what year you, you first ran for city government here, but I know you were in the town of Washington. Describe for our listeners kind of the mood in Eau Claire at the time and why you decided to get involved. Yeah, I've thought about that sometimes. I think that um, elected officials are most often recruited, which is going to take me a little while to describe that, but someone you know sees something in you. And that's what that was the case with me. I was encouraged to run for city council because I had been on plan commission and I had been in the town of Washington and someone someone saw and encouraged me. Eric Wall, to okay. tell you the truth. <laughs> um, we sat at my dining room table and wrote my campaign letters and Betty and Eric and my husband and I licked all the stamps and my, all that stuff. So I think I think I was encouraged by a friend and someone I respected. But that was because there was something inside, <laughs> something they could now, see. Was there one thing other than just being generally helpful and supportive, was there something that, you know, did you have an issue that you were really excited about? Or what, what motivated you at the time to say, you know, if I get on city council, I want to do this? I had been on plan commission already for almost nine years. So 
land use was uber important to me. And RCU had, uh, Charlie Grosklaus had just risen up to say, another leader who said, no, RCU is going to stay downtown. That's it. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and so then once, once that land use decision had been made, then everything, everything went out from there. If you remember where Haymarket Plaza is now was a parking lot with crumbling meters, crime, People didn't like to be there at night. And we had heard the story on Plan Commission about how Eau Claire had turned its back on the river since the early 1900s. We'd built parking lots, trees had grown up, we'd been built tall buildings with their back doors to the river. And so I saw those two things converge, this promise <laughs> that Phoenix Park could actually be a place. <laughs> it was remarkable. And then, once that could be a place, then, as we're seeing, the sky's the limit. Okay, well, so just as before we get going a little bit further, quick civics lesson. Okay, mm -hmm. so what actually does the city council do, and then eventually the city council president do? The, in our system, in our country, we practice a representative government and a system of federalism. Our founders were very strong about dividing power, checks and balance, laterally, and dividing power vertically and horizontally. So the city council and local government in general has what are called designated powers. They can do limited things. Some of them are create their own ordinances, which uh, cannot conflict with state law or the consti constitution. They can generally police their own uh, jurisdiction. They can tax and raise revenue, but only in a, in, in a restricted formula. So the, the kind of short answer is that local government is deep and small, but there are a lot of us. There are 260,000 local governments in America. <laughs> So there are a lot of us making noise, but we can only do very proscribed. We have very proscribed power. And even more so in that, <coughs> the city council president has very, as an office, is a very limited power. Eau Claire had a mayor once in 1947. That's the last time. A mayor is, a, is much more politically powerful. Um, she wrote... Uh, devises the budget. She can veto. She sets the agenda. City council president doesn't do any of those things. So we have a very shared uh, city manager, council president, former government, much more shared. Oh. So you have to be wily. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent five years on city council and then you became president. How, yeah. does, how does that happen in Eau Claire? Um, we, it, we're the only city in the state of Wisconsin who elects its city council president in a general election. Most other city manager forms, we have a, that's our form of government, the city council president is elected by the city council. In our form of government, city manager government, the council president runs in a general election. So, you know, there's the kissing babies stumping. <laughs> <laughs> so what motivated you to turn for city council president as opposed to just being on the city council? I would, uh, I was and uh, at the time the first female president in 
of the city council elected in at large. There were two women before me, but they have been elected by the city council itself. And I took some pride in that. I wanted to see if I could do it. Yes, <laughs> well, well done. I did it, and then I did it seven more times. So, <laughs> Well, that's exciting. Um, <laughs> and so during that time, I mean, did you feel you know, this excitement in Eau Claire building. I mean, I, I, again, here in 2023, we look at this as saying, well, of course, it was always going to happen this way. And I know, you know, in my time here and either reading in the, the newspaper or talking to people in the, the, the community that things weren't quite as clear cut as they were back, you know, in the day as some of these things, issues were coming up. Could you describe just maybe some of the, the issues that happened down here, happened during your tenure, and maybe ones that uh, y you still look back fondly now as being so, like, yep, we did that one right? <laughs> um, this may, uh, the thing I am most proud of is the downtown development and the Pablo Center in particular. I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. A funny little thing that I'm <laughs> really proud of is. In my first presidency, year of presidency, and the second one, I had a very good relationship with the planning staff because I'd been on plan commission, and we had we had excellent professionals on city staff, just excellent. And we devised a way to to work out intergovernmental land use agreements with every jurisdiction that touched our border. That was. 11, I believe. We have wow. 11 intergovernmental land use agreements that are still in place. Sadly, they were challenged by a recent council decision to annex some property that was not, that was contrary to the intergovernmental land use agreement. So mm. nothing lasts forever. Um, but in essence, that set up with uh, a more powerful and a larger, a larger land use with more power than all these tiny jurisdictions and and it set up a good relationship with the town boards and the city administrators and it was great I was really proud of that <laughs> well something else that happened too and I believe you were part of this but um, I graduated from W. Eau Claire I believe you did did, did, did as well mm -hmm. and I remember when I there was a time when you would step off the the camp step off Garfield Avenue and you might as well have a passport. You're in a whole different world where this is the university was here and, you know, one block over you were in the city of Eau Claire and, you know, the two never met. Um, that's changed dramatically, you know, whether through the Pablo or the Haymarket or whatever. How did that process come about? It started with parking. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, as a person who's lived here a while, you know that the third ward we affectionately call is a mixture of of homeowner and rentals, some historic homes. I mean, beautiful homes. The parking was a constant nag about students blocking driveways, and not just students, but the the parking was a mess. One day we had a breakthrough. I don't remember whose idea it was that we would widen the setbacks on every driveway. So now, and they went from four feet, I think, to 10 feet. It was quite, quite a bit. And the neighbors calmed down. People stayed out of their driveway. And we, in some streets, we took parking off one side altogether. And that, how funny, 
I mean, life is funny that way. That little decision turned out to be monumental as far as how we lived together with the mm. student. There are 10,000 students in our city. Correct. <laughs> and we figured out how to live together. And that led to the student housing, which uh, was part of the Pablo Confluence Project. The Confluence Project was called at the time. We figured out, oh, yeah, we can have 400 students downtown. Sure, we, we live together. Well. Now, one big issue that in, has been on the state level, and it's been in the municipalities for years, has been this item of state revenue sharing. And uh, the communities are bristle at this because, of course, you know, the state will mandate certain things and they require you as the city or the county government especially, but cities well are mandated to do certain things, but yet don't have quite the dollars to do so. And there is a revenue sharing formula, which is somewhat obsolete. And over time, the expectations to be more and the dollars get to be less and you're capping how much you can um, tax, you know, a property and da 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 it's a very complex issue, and I know it's probably not a fair question, uh, but your perspective of that formula and what's happening now, I know the state, there's a proposal out there where going forward, I think the municipalities will be get to get 20% of the state sales tax, and that'll grow going forward. Did you find that formula very restrictive, and how did you survive underneath that cap? At the very beginning of my tenure on council, which would be 1990, let's see, 2003, the state shared revenue formula started changing. That was the first time it started changing. And shared, just to be clear, shared revenue is very attractive to local municipalities because it's a general revenue fund. And it, so it can be, it's not earmarked. It, you can spend it any way your municipality sees fit. So it's very attractive. <laughs> and it it does help you keep your property tax um, rate lower. Uh, lower. So, but the, rev the revenue formula started changing and it has been changing for a long time. It got more restrictive and then they, Eau Claire, be, um, there was a formula that included how much debt you had and we as a local city did not have a lot of debt because we also instituted a, a debt policy and a fund balance policy very early in my tenure. You cannot rise above a certain debt ratio, debt, debt to general revenue. So that's a local issue, not a state <coughs> issue. That's a local okay. level. We did that. And so we had a very low debt ratio. So we came out kind of bad in the shared mm. revenue formula. So that has limped along. And, and now there is a hue and cry about uh, that the revenue formula needs to be reworked. And um, it's, a, it's a strange time because of the influx of ARPA money and uh, federal support for municipalities and for nonprofits therein. So it's an it's a odd time of revenue source figuring out. The story is very complicated. Well, and I think it, and it's, it, it's, it's perplexing for someone. You look at the community and how it's growing, and you would think that, of course, mm -hmm. with the growth, there's a lot more tax base. And it, it, how, how can you be running out of money when you're growing like this? But then, on the other hand, a lot of the growth is 
uh, university in which is it taxed? And, you know, so it's not just what's be growing, but what how that growth is then feeding back into the city, plus the city has to provide more services for all these new people coming on board and these new entities coming on board. Well, without a doubt, we will have more property tax revenue. <laughs> <laughs> um, our taxable construction is definitely growing, and without a doubt. So where I'm not sure if the local the idea for shared revenue cares one twit about what what your property tax net um, what the value the aggregate value of your property tax is. I think they're looking at some kind of different measure, but the it would be my thought that it's hard for the citizen to hear the story about being out of money when we do have new construction, we have an influx of ARPA money, we just passed a referendum, a local referendum. So it's it's hard to hear the story about being out of money. I think if I could say perhaps the city leadership has maybe done less than a good job of telling the story. And so. and it's a complicated story, and, and yeah. I know, and I, and I think there's a responsibility on a part of all of us as citizens to be able to educate ourselves. And, and I think it's it's hard to get beyond the sound bites a little bit, and you know, uh, a good civics lesson now and then maybe not be most exciting thing out in the world, but I think it's critical for making our government work. Um, that being said, it's a segue into my next question: is is what are the best ways for citizens to get involved in government? Um, start on a board or commission, and and how do you d how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's a simple way and a and a, a more honest and complex way. <laughs> the simple way is that on the website we have citizen resource forms, and you fill one out, of course, and you submit it um, electronically to the used to be an executive assistant. I don't think there is one in the city manager's office anymore, so I'm not sure where that goes. But So that's the simple thing. You just look through our 16 boards and commissions and you say, oh, that one interests me, and you fill out a form. Okay. But what really happens <laughs> is that someone on city council might recruit someone to perform to sign up for a board or commission because they realize there's some expertise that they know in their life and... Um, it's the same thing I talked about at the very beginning. Most often, people are recruited by other people. So and to make your desire known to your that's city right. council person? Make your desire known. Speak at council. Well, a simple thing to do is stand up and speak and speak about your talent and your expertise. And then someone will say, oh, that's interesting. That person's a thoughtful person. <laughs> Well, here's the, my, my last kind of challenging question, but just your advice for, for dealing with divisive times. I mean, obviously you dealt with a lot of challenges during your years, and, and I think one of the, the areas that I've heard said many times about you is you know, your, your ability to be clear-minded and um, open, and you don't get yourself riled during stressful periods of time. What's your advice for, I mean, if you could sit back and say, what do we need to do better as a 
society overall, but specifically on the city government stage to kind of allow people to all be heard, but yet move things forward? Um, uh, I, I have some, like the, the editorial in the paper said about a month ago, I am troubled by some of the current city council habits. I'm troubled. Mostly because there's no diversity of values, and your values are what you filter the world through, <laughs> and, and there is a very little diversity. It's all what our founders worried about when they talked about the tyranny of the majority. And I believe that we are witnessing that in our own little little world. So I think they should work harder to increase that diversity of values and backgrounds that are uh, that come to city council or are um, encouraged to run, for example. So, but that can be tough because, as you say, maybe I was calm. I hopefully I tried to portray a calm leadership. I felt that council chambers was a serious place, and we should conduct ourselves so that people respect local government and, and democracy, that they love her <laughs> and respect her. So I ran a very tight meeting. And I would also say, try to concentrate on the problem. Try to concentrate on what it is that you're trying to solve, not, not who brought the problem or what it means. Uh, what it means for your neighbor, yourself. Try to concentrate on the problem. What are the facts of it? What are the long-term repercussions of a decision you might make? And then you have to separate yourself. As a leader, you have to separate yourself from the people. And you have to be willing to make a difficult decision and to back your decision because you've heard good data, you've heard their concerns, and you care about the concerns, you can weigh all those things as a one step removed. <laughs> and I think, I think that mostly what you do on city council is make decisions. That's what you do. And it's serious stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> and you did a great job with it. Yeah. Um, on a lighter note, so you had such a role to play in kind of the development and growth of Beauclair your favorite places and favorite things to do in the city? Hmm. So I'm a rabid dog lover. So I I guess I, I can say this. <laughs> <laughs> I live close to Fairfax Park, which is by South Middle School. Sure. And I walk my dog Ruby there um, at least four times a week. And we have a little path. And sometimes when the s school lets out, the students come by or other dog walkers and um, it's a place I can think and be in a urban, an urban trail in an urban park, and I really like that. Secondly, of course, um, I'm a, I grew up in an urban area, so I'm a downtown gal. <laughs> I'm not a farm girl. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm an urban gal. I like sound and music and cement and art, and so to walk uh, now to walk the trail you can make a circle across the bridge which the Kiwanis and we are effort which try 
lit the railroad bridge and the Grand Avenue bridge, you can make a nice circle. And I often do that too and look at the Pablo Center and the buildings behind it and think about what was there. And if sometimes I think, well, did we do the right thing? Could it, we have done better? Will it be here in 50 years? Will it serve people well? And is it welcoming? And is it making money? <laughs> <laughs> well, it must be exciting to, like, <laughs> a Saturday morning to see the farmer's market. And just, it's the place is just alive. And it's mm -hmm. fun. And it is um, just so uplifting, you know. And to see the kind of democracy of work. I mean, everybody comes. Everybody enjoys. It's folks who have wealth though folks who don't have wealth and they're all kind of in the same space and j just enjoying the atmosphere and i mean that's got to be exciting even for someone who does live in, in eau claire i do drive down a couple times a year just to be part of that experience it's it's a like the you've been here long enough to know that downtown was on life support it was it was gasping <laughs> for air <laughs> and now it's not now she's singing <laughs> that's great well final qu i know we're running short of time but i have a final question for you your thoughts of the future of eau claire i mean what do you think is going to be happening now our population's growing the area is expanding um are you optimistic um well let's see i'm an old workhorse and we have a hard time being optimistic in general <laughs> <laughs> but I think that Eau Claire has um, found herself, <laughs> and there's something there's something when you pass people on the street or you're in the grocery store, or you're sitting in the theater, you're having a um, dinner. Um, I volunteer at Haven House, the daytime shelter, when they're shoulder to shoulder with other people or just helping other people out and. There is a a pulse, <laughs> and I think it's here to stay. I don't know that we'll set the world on fire, but we're going to set Northwest Wisconsin on fire for sure. <laughs> well, that'd be fun. <laughs> what you've done more than your fair share making that happen. So thank you so much, Carrie. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk. You're welcome. I appreciate the ask. Uh, thanks for listening to uh, Carrie and I chat over beer today. If you like what you've heard, please give Banquet with the Beer a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Northwestern Bank website, or wherever you listen to your podcast from. Banquet with the Beer is sponsored by Northwestern Bank, building stronger communities where people matter.